Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Peter Duffy discusses the question, 19th century colonialism, did the National Trust get it right? Now, two years ago, the National Trust published a report whose full title was Interim Report on the Connections Between Colonialism and Properties Now in the Care of the National Trust, including links with historic slavery. This includes the global slave trading, goods and products of slave labour, abolition and protest, and the East India Company. Now, how many of you actually read that report? Well, I have. And... I was particularly interested when I got to the section covering the 19th century. All that was included was the cotton industry because of its connections to slave-produced cotton, the banking industry, and I'm an ex-banker, so I felt guilty of this bit, largely for the same reasons, because banking funded the cotton trade. The British Raj, after 1857, including what we call the Indian Mutiny. Now, the gazetteer that accompanied the report and that spotlit properties that were implicated in, in colonialism included Winston Churchill's Chartwell. He was censured for his role in the 1943 Bengal famine. The other property was Cragside, which was the home of Sir William Armstrong. He was accused of supplying arms for the British military in its colonial interests in the 19th century. And Bateman's, the house of Rudyard Kipling, because according to the National Trust's historians, the British Empire was a central theme to his literary output, which to my mind displays an extraordinary ignorance of Kipling's work. I felt that the 19th century part of the report was partial and slanted to a particular viewpoint. You may remember reading the controversy it inspired, especially in the section explicitly criticising Winston Churchill for his role in the 1943 Bengal famine responsibility that is highly disputed to this day, particularly amongst Indian historians. I wrote to the head of the National Trust. I pointed this out and I offered alternatives, and alternative substantiated viewpoints, particularly for the causes of the Indian mutiny. And one of her minions replied, merely maintaining their approach and not accepting that these issues were contested by responsible historians not giving any indication of being prepared to enter into a debate, as all good historians such as yourselves would do. So I then wrote to the chairman, urging him to initiate a review of the research and the approach underlay this section of the report. As you know, he immediately resigned. Whether a result of my prompting, I cannot yet say. Yet, the fact that the National Trust historians actually wrote so little on 19th century colonialism sparked my interest. Do you know the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes story, Silver Blades? This is about one racehorse being clandestinely substituted for another, with large sums and reputations at stake. Now, Sherlock is asked by a police inspector about the case, and his question was, is there any point to which you wish to draw my attention? 
And Sherlock replied, to the curious incident of the dog in the night time. And the inspector said, the dog did nothing in the night time. And Sherlock replied, that was the curious incident. So the National Trust had avoided the whole question of 19th century colonialism. Was the dog doing nothing in the night time that sparked my interest? I began to research the question further and found it to be for me personally, and I hope for you too, absolutely fascinating. Now the key feature of 19th century colonialism, as opposed to the earlier colonialism that was linked to the slave trade, was that it was a people's colonialism, fueled by an extraordinary wave of emigration from the British Isles, then including Ireland. In 1800, the population of mainland Britain alone was estimated to be about 9 million. By 1900, it had increased to 41 million. Now, this incredible increase can be put down to a number of factors. Agricultural improvements leading to more and better food availability, consequently increased fertility rates, plus declining death rates as a result of improvements in public health. Yet the increase in population was also accompanied by an extraordinary increase in migration. Can anyone give me an estimate of what the numbers were in the long 19th century from the years 1815 to 1914? Well, the best estimate I have ever seen is approximately 21 million, 7.5 million from Ireland and 13.5 million from the rest of the United Kingdom. How incredible it can be seen to be when it is compared to the fact that it is estimated that in another great but enforced migration, 12 million slaves were taken from Africa across the Atlantic. But this occurred over three centuries and not just one. So what were the causes of this outstanding outflow from Britain in such a short space of time? Now, the Irish immigration can be put down to the potato famine. A considerable portion of that from Scotland, it is estimated about 100,000 people were forced out, to the Highland clearances, when the chiefs, the clan chiefs, not the English, forced their tenants off their farms to convert them to sheep runs. However, by far the larger number of the emigrants were driven by lack of work for young men, particularly in agriculture. Following the repeal of the Corn Laws and the consequent flood of cheap food into Britain, British agriculture went into a long period of decline and the availability of work on farms disappeared. Additionally, other long-established industries changed fundamentally with consequent changes in labour needs. For example, the developments of mechanised weaving drove male manual weavers into unemployment. The machines in the new factories were largely tended by young children and women. At the same time, as we shall see, there were a series of pulls from the Anglo colonies. Those who already emigrated wrote back, encouraging their families and friends to join them. Travelling to the colonies became much cheaper and easier, and the time taken to arrive much shorter. The colonial governments and holders of large grants of land, such as the railway companies, publicised the availability of cheap land for homesteading. For example, in Canada, there were grants of 140 acres for $10 for homesteading, with a further 140 acres available after a year's successful settlement. So where did all these emigrants go in the long 19th century? The emigration created the settled Anglo world, the English-speaking countries that today include the United States of America, British North America, as Canada was originally known, Australia, New Zealand, 
and Southern Africa. Over half of the emigration was to the United States of America, even during the Civil War. British North America, that is Canada, was the next major destination. In fact, equaling and even outstripping the US from 1900 onwards. South Africa was not a major player until the gold and diamond discoveries at the end of the 19th century. The Indian subcontinent, although it was a key element in the British Empire, was not a major participant in this Anglo settler world. And I'd now like to tell you a personal story, and there's a reason for this that I hope will become clear as we go along. Just over 80 years ago, and that's a horrifying number, when I was nearly four, my parents were very worried that England was going to be invaded. My aunt had married a Canadian soldier who'd come to England with the Canadian Expeditionary Force during the First World War and had gone to live with him in Canada when the war was over. She offered to look after my brother and I, and he is here today, and he will correct me if I get my facts wrong, but he needs to be careful. <laughs> now, a Canadian friend of my parents, who was going back to Canada, offered to take us with her. So we went to Liverpool, as so many emigrants to the North American Canada had done before us, and joined the Duchess of Richmond to cross the 3,000 miles of the Atlantic to Halifax on the Canadian East Coast. From there, we were taken to Toronto and put on a Canadian Pacific train in the care of the conductor. We were bound for the city of Regina in the province of Saskatchewan, two-thirds of the way across Canada. It was a provincial capital based in the middle of the flat open prairie lands that stretched for hundreds and hundreds of miles around. Now, why Regina? Well, it was because my uncle had later been a member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and their headquarters was and still is there. The trip took two days and two nights, and we ate in the restaurant car of the train and slept in bunks that folded up above the seats as though some of you have seen the film, Some Like It Hot, will remember the scene with Jack Lemmon and Marion Monroe. Unfortunately, my brother and I were far too young for such goings-on at that time. When we arrived, we sent my parents a telegram confirming our safety. We regularly wrote to them, telling them about our schooling and how we had seen the Red Indians with their teepees at the great annual agricultural show. They in turn regularly wrote back and sent money for our upkeep. So what we can see in this vignette are many of the elements that were features of the great Anglo diaspora, the spread of English-speaking peoples across the world, elements such as the shipping lines, the railways, the communication links, the financial links, and especially the family links, which bound the whole Anglo world together. What I'm also going to do as I present component features of this Anglo diaspora is to quote a series of extracts from the works of Rudyard Kipling. He was a true muse on this movement and understood it more clearly than many of his contemporaries and indeed people do today. Often when we think of his work, it is Kim, Mowgli, the Jungle Book and his Indian works that we remember. However, it was his post-India life and the Anglo world that was the most influential in his later work. After spending only six years in India as a young man, he left in 1889, and I think he only returned once very briefly. After India, he travelled by steamship via outposts of the empire, Hong Kong, Singapore, Rangoon, and then across the Pacific to the west coast of North America. There he travelled slowly across the continent by rail 
visiting many of the new communities in Canada and the United States that were springing up following the recent completion of the American and Canadian cross-continental railway lines. He then took a steamer from the US back to London via Liverpool. Later, after a nervous breakdown, he resumed his voyaging, going to New Zealand via South Africa and Australia. After his marriage, he went with his wife to live near her family in America for five years before returning to the UK. Later, with his family, he went every winter to South Africa and also went there to support the British side during the Boer War. He returned to Canada and to the US regularly, and sadly his daughter died of pneumonia in New York during a family visit to the US. Thus, on a personal level, he had considerable exposure to the Anglo world. The new Anglo world as it was being created, a world that he tried to describe and explain to his contemporaries and also to us. There's that famous couplet that he wrote, Winds of the world give answer, they are whimpering to and fro. What do they know of England that only England know? A close reading of his novel, Captain's Courageous, written just after his time in America as a married man, uses the process of this creation of this new Anglo world as the spine of the story. It starts with a young, spoiled American boy falling off a transatlantic ocean liner into the sea, where he is rescued by a Portuguese fisherman. Eventually, the boy, after many adventures and experience of the kind of hard life of the cod fisherman on the Newfoundland banks, he learns the need for self-discipline, for what Kipling calls the law. Arriving back at the fishing ship's home port on the east coast, he sends a telegram to his parents, who are still mourning his loss at their home in California. They cross the continent by rail in four days. Reunited with his parents, his multimillionaire father tells his son the story of his life. And here I quote Kipling again. It was the story of 40 years that was at the same time the story of the New West, whose story is yet to be written. It began with a kinless boy turned loose in Texas and went on fantastically through a hundred changes and chops of life the scene shifting from state after western state, from cities that sprang up in a month and in a season utterly withered away, to wild ventures in wilder camps that are now laboriously paved municipalities. It covered the building of three railroads and the deliberate wreck of a fourth. It's told of steamers, townships, forests and mines, and men of every nation under the heaven, manning, creating, hewing and digging these. Captain's Courageous ends with a young hero returning to the sea, only this time preparing to follow his father in the business of growing the new nation, taking over the family Trans-Pacific Shipping Agency. So it was in the early part of the 19th century, with Britain emerging from the Napoleonic Wars, with worldwide colonies and as mistress of the oceans, that the process of settler colonialism began. Because of my own personal connections and experience, I'm therefore going to use the story of the Anglo settlement in Canada as the example. But the 19th century histories of settlement colonialism in the United States, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, all display many of the same features as that of Canada. The process of settler colonialism began in all cases with a number of colonies, states, provinces, call them what you will, along a coastline governed by the mother country. 
all had largely unexplored, undeveloped hinterlands, usually very thinly populated by hunter-gatherers. With the growing pressure of population in the UK and the attractiveness of these hinterlands for more intensive forms of agriculture, the process of immigration began. It was aided by improvements in transportation systems, shipping, railroads, supported by improvements in communications, telegraph and postal services. With them, the emigrants brought a range of skills and technologies, more intensive farming, legal systems, finance, community and town formation, all supported by a common language, English. In the course of time, the colonies, provinces, states, federated, claiming independence from mother country and control of their hinterlands as part of this process. So let us look at more detail at how this process worked out in Canada during the 19th century. Whilst the American colonies had declared independence in 1776, the colonies in British North America, as it was known, remained the true North strong and free, to quote the words of the Canadian National Anthem, which I had to sing every morning when I went to school. In 1828, the Hudson Bay Company, who held all the rights to Rupert's Land, the Northwest Company, who held their similar rights in the Northwest Territory, merged, thus combining the land in between the Eastern and the Western colonies. This land was largely prairie and was mainly occupied by hunter-gatherers, Indian tribes, and by the Metis, mixed-race Indian and French trappers. In 1867, the Eastern provinces merged to form the Dominion of Canada, and in 1871, British Columbia also joined. In 1876, the Dominion government purchased the Hudson Bay Company rights in Rupert Land and acquired the Northwest Territories, thus eventually opening up 118 million acres of prairie land for settlers. The province of Manitoba was formed with Winnipeg as its capital. The key date is 1885, with the completion of the Transcontinental Railway. That's the key date in Canada's history. Following this, in 1905, the province of Alberta was formed with the capital at Calgary and Saskatchewan with its capital at Regina. All three of them were linked by the Transcontinental Railway. That is the key element to the formation of Canada as a state. And it was developed in shipping and ships in the 19th century, which was the first leg in enabling the worldwide spread of the British. Before air travel, it was by ships that the continents of the world were connected. And there was a geometric improvement in these connections through the conversion from 18th century sail to 19th century steam. Sailing ships could take up to six months to reach Australia and three months to reach New York. And by 1860, steamers took only 10 days to reach New York. By 1870, 27 days to reach Australia by the newly opened Suez Canal. At the same time, the use of iron in ships and later steel enabled larger ships carrying more passengers and cargo to be constructed. In 1836, Isambard Kingdom Brunel's steamship Great Western was the first ship to be able to carry enough coal to make a scheduled transatlantic crossing possible. His 1845 Great Britain had screw propulsion, was at the time the largest ship in the world now recovered as a hulk from the Falkland Islands, where she'd ended her career. She's been rebuilt in Bristol and is a glowing testimonial to her builders and their vision. 
1858, she was superseded in turn by Brunel's Great Eastern, even larger with a capacity for 4,000 passengers at a speed of 14 knots and had the ability to travel from the UK to Australia without recoaling. After years on the UK-New York route as a passenger ship, she was converted to cable laying and laid the first transatlantic cable in 1866. She later laid cable from Bombay to Aden and Alexandria. By the mid-1870s, a worldwide network of submarine cables had been laid, primarily interconnecting all the Anglo world with the main nodal point in Great Britain. Of this great network, Kipling wrote, they have wakened the timeless things, they have killed their father time. Joining hands in the gloom, a league from the last of the sun. Hush, men talk today o'er the waste of the ultimate slime. A new world runs between them, let us be one. A new world has been created and it's to be one united world. With the further developments of more and more efficient and reliable compound steam engines, it was possible to have liner ships sailing fixed routes on regular scheduled dates. Kipling was fascinated by such ships and their engines, and two of his greatest poems involve the working of ships and the lives of those who ran and owned them. And I'll look at one of them, MacAndrew's hymn. Romance, those first-class passengers, they take it very well. Painted and bound in little books, but why don't poets tell? I'm sick of all their quirks and turns and loves and doves they dream. Lord, send us a man like Robbie Burns to sing the song of steam, to match with Scotia's noblest speech yon orchestra sublime, where to uplifted like the just, the tail rods mark the time. The crank throughs give the double bass, the feed pump sobs and heaves, and now the main eccentrics start their quarrel on the sheaves. Her time, her own appointed time, the rocking link's head hides, till here that note the rods return, wings glimmering through the guides. Now all together, hear them lift their lesson, theirs and mine, law, order, duty and restraint, obedience, discipline. Very Kipling. Now, shipping fleets expanded exponentially as trade and emigration grew. Companies such as Cunard flourished in the UK on the UK-New York route, P&O and Alfred Holt on the routes to the Far East. A key element in the development of trade was in the form of government contracts for the provision of regular mail services. By 1858, the cost of this was 325,000 a year, which in present-day terms would be a very significant sum. This had risen to 665,000 a year 30 years later. By the end of the century, the introduction of the Imperial Penny Postage Scheme extended the ability for all classes to communicate, and especially for those who had already settled abroad, to report back, usually to their families in England, the opportunities and benefits of coming out to the new Anglo colonies to join them. But as well as the general purpose passenger and cargo ships, the specialist ships were developed for particular trades. There were the refrigerated ships that brought meat and dairy products from North America, Australia and New Zealand. There were banana ships, such as the converted banana ship which brought my brother and I back from Canada at the end of the war. There were eventually oil tankers replacing the colliers that had originally supplied fuel for the fleets. Kipling, of course, had words to describe the effect of this globalisation 
brought about by the expansion of transport in the 19th century. Oh, where are you going to all you big steamers with England's own coal up and down the salt sea? We're going to fetch you your bread and your butter, your beef, pork and mutton, eggs, apples and cheese. And where will you fetch it from all you big steamers? And where shall I write you when you're away? We'll fetch it from Melbourne, Quebec and Vancouver. Address us at Hobart, Hong Kong and Bombay. For the bread that you eat and the biscuits you nibble, the sweets that you suck and the joints that you carve are brought to you daily by all us big steamers. And if anyone hinders our coming, you'll starve. And that's very pressing because that's what nearly happened in two world wars. Now, complementing the development of sea-based travel and trade, there was a huge expansion of rail networks in every part of the Anglo world. A famous case, of course, is in India, where the creation of a system across the subcontinent that was one of the major contributing factors to the development of the idea of a united India. But it was the same in all the countries of the Anglo world. In 1860, there were 66,000 miles of railways worldwide. By 1910, there were 465,000 miles. In the United States, for example, it's impossible to imagine the country achieving its manifest destiny and spreading from sea to shining sea without the transcontinental railway system, completed in 1869. It brought settlers in to farm the land and took their products back to the cities and to the coast to be exported. Kipling in Captain's Courageous describes, in a wonderful tour de force, the young hero's parents taking the four-day transcontinental trip from their home in California. And I'm going to quote him here. The six-foot drivers were hammering their way to San Bernardino and the Mojave Wastes, but this was no grade for speed. That would come later. The heat of the desert followed the heat of the hills as they turned east to the Needles and the Colorado River. The car cracked in the utter drought and glare and they put crashed ice on Mrs. Cheney's neck and toiled up the long, long grades past Ash Fork towards Flagstaff, where the forests and the quarries are, under the dry, remote skies. The needles of the speed indicator wagged to and fro, and the cinders rattled on the roof, and a whirl of dust sucked after the whirling wheels. And if you read the whole description of that transcontinental voyage, I would call it, as the supposedly bereft parents go to meet their child. It is utterly moving, but it's a brilliant, brilliant piece of writing. So I recommend it, if you learn nothing else today, to try and read that. And the completion of the American Transcontinental Railway, plus the passing of the Homestead Act in 1862, during the Civil War, allowed a farmer 160 acres for a minimal registration fee this created the supply conditions for a rapid increase in the number of settlers in America. This combination was so successful that in Canada there was concern that the American settlers would attempt to move on to the empty prairies of Rupert's Land and the Northwest Territory. So the Canadians therefore passed their own equivalent to the Homestead Act in 1872 and pressed ahead as rapidly as possible with their transcontinental railway which was completed, as we've seen, in 1885. Now, the Canadian Railway was a public-private enterprise. Work began with the survey of possible routes, and this was complemented by a land survey, dividing the prairies along the possible routes 
into 160-acre lots, each to be the basis for a homesteading farm. In 1879, funds were raised in the city of London, and in 1880, Canadian Pacific Railways was founded and allocated 25 million acres of land which it could use to attract settlers. The railway was built using, amongst other labourers, 17,000 indentured Chinese. Following completion, Canadian Pacific Railways began an intense campaign to bring migrants to Canada, offering a package of Canadian Pacific ships, Canadian Pacific Railways, with specialist carriages for settlers with dedicated sleeping and cooking arrangements, plus the ability to obtain Canadian Pacific land for settling along the route of the railways. In addition to completing all the submarine cables, telegraph lines were built along the railway lines, linking all the communities on the way with each other and with the outside world. In 1940, why was Regina our destination? When we arrived, it had a population in excess of 100,000. It had all the infrastructure of a modern city, being the government and service centre for the province of Saskatchewan. It had the headquarters of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. As I noted earlier, our uncle had been a Mountie and had retired in Regina. It had the railway station where we arrived, we were very close to it. It had the city hall. It had the post office which handed our letters we sent to and received from our parents in England. It had schools which I went to from the age of six. There were hospitals. There were cinemas which my brother and I were sent to every Saturday morning to give our uncle and aunt a break. There were public libraries where we would go weekly to get our Wizard of Oz and Tarzan books. There was a university. There was a public tram system. This was before buses. And there were many churches. We went to the little Anglican church for Sunday school. There were banks which handled the money our parents from England sent to support us. There were hotels where my wife and I visited when we returned to Regina only a few years ago for a trip down memory lane. And there was the provincial capital building. This was laid out with parkland, which had cannons that had been captured by the Canadians during the First World War in the grounds. And there were something like 250,000 trees were brought in by rail to Regina because there are no trees on the prairies. Only 60 years earlier, there had been nothing on this site but a pile of bones. In fact, the site of Regina in Indian is pile of bones. These are a relic of the great buffalo slaughter of the century, waiting rail transportation east for conversion into glue and fertilizer. In the ensuing 60 years, and I keep on stressing that 60, an incredibly short space of time, not only had the city been founded, but built up with all the infrastructure needed for a provincial capital, and it had also been populated as were the prairies for hundreds of miles around by settlers attracted by the virtually free land and given access to it by the railways and shipping lines. But Regina was only one of the new cities in Canada whose population exploded in the 19th century. It was matched in Saskatchewan by Saskatoon and Moose Jaw and cities such as Winnipeg, Vancouver, Edmond and Victoria elsewhere in Canada whilst at the same time, longer established cities, such as Toronto, Quebec, and Ottawa in the East, showed exponential growth. But such growth was repeated throughout the Anglo world in cities such as Chicago, Pittsburgh, and San Francisco in the US, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, and Perth in Australia, 
Auckland and Wellington in New Zealand, and Johannesburg and Durban in South Africa. All these were also complemented by a range of newly established smaller cities, towns and villages, and by the homesteads of the settlers. In Canada, there were on the prairies that great belt of land stretching across the continent. And Kipling described the prairies like this. To the far-flung fenceless prairie, where the quick cloud shadows trail, to our neighbour's barn in the offing, the line of the new cut rail, to the plough in her league-long furrow, with the grey lake gulls behind, to the weight of a half-year's winter, and the warm, wet, western wind. One of the critical results of the spread of the Anglo population was an enormous increase in international trade, which multiplied tenfold between 1850 and 1930. This was the first true globalization of the world economy. As we have seen, this was underwritten by advances in shipping, the docks, the railways, undersea cables, the telegraph system, all serving the new markets that developed as a result of rapidly increasing immigration. It was supported by a range of financial services developed and provided by the City of London. Firstly, there was trade finance provided by the merchant banks such as Rothschilds and Barriers and the clearing banks increasingly consolidated. Then there were the services to support trade and investment such as Lloyd's Insurance, the Baltic Exchange for Shipbroking, the Wool Exchange, the Coal Exchange and the Cotton Exchange in Liverpool. There was finance for the infrastructure projects being undertaken in the Anglo world, finance for the docks, the railways, the utilities and for mining ventures, all provided by the London Stock Exchange. Of these global flows of finance controlled, he thought, by Jewish financiers such as Rothschilds, Rudyard Kipling wrote in his poem, The Song of the Fifth River, He is the Lord of the Last, the fifth most wonderful flood. He hears her thunder past, and her song is in his blood. He can foresee she will fall, for he knows which fountain dries behind which desert belt a thousand leagues to the south. He can foresay she will rise. He knows what far snows melt along which mountain wall a thousand leagues to the north. He snuffs the coming drought, and he sniffs the coming rain and he knows what each will bring forth and turns it to his gain. Now the cable, telegraph and postal systems brought market information around the world to London to inform investors as conditions changed. And the Dominions maintained agents in the UK who were increasingly active in recruiting migrants and informing potential immigrants of the advantages that the country had to offer. So, as well as the push of poor conditions and the lack of opportunities in the UK. Each of the Anglo communities advertised widely their offers for a better life. What this golden advertising did not report was the hardships of life on the prairies. Settlers were often isolated in huts that they had to build on their homesteads with little or no access to schools, churches, medical care or to transport. The winters in the prairies, as I know to my cost, are unbelievably cool, with temperatures down in the minus 30s for four months of the year. 
and the further wind chill factor from the freezing blizzards that tear down from the Arctic. Many emigrants failed. They were unable to make a living in this harsh environment. But many succeeded, triumphing over the enormous difficulties and making a new country in the process. And the new countries formed by the great Anglo immigration became magnets for other emigrants and refugees. In Canada, it was those such as the wheat farming Ukrainians who came to Saskatchewan in large numbers in the 19th century. Later, it has been the Chinese who have made Vancouver the largest Chinese city outside Asia. There's been real Indian Indians. In the US, it was initially poor Jews, Italians, Scandinavians, Germans, the huddled masses yearning to be free. But they were later followed by the Latinos. And in Australia, it was the Greek and the Italians who vastly improved Australian cuisine, and then by the Vietnamese who improved it even more. The great Anglo immigration has also left its physical mark in the home countries. And this can be seen in London, as well as in its fueling the growth of such ports as Bristol, Liverpool, Glasgow and Southampton. It is an interesting commentary that people talk about Bristol, say for example, as being built on slavery. Well, it may have had its start in slavery, in slavery transport, but its real impetus in the 19th century came from emigration and import and export between England and the Anglo world. As we've seen earlier, this huge expansion in trade. If you stand in Trafalgar Square, facing the National Gallery, you will see Canada House. Now, opposite Canada House are the offices of Canadian Pacific Railway and Canadian National Railway. They've now been changed for other purposes. But if you look up on the wall, you'll see the writing Canadian National Railway. In Haymarket, you'll see New Zealand House. On your right, you'll see South Africa House. Just along the Strand is Zimbabwe, formerly Rhodesia House. Further along the Strand is Australia House. But behind you is Charing Cross Station, from which emigrants left for Southampton, a major portal to the Anglo world. As an aside, Kipling lived in Hungerford Street, running alongside Charing Cross Station. He lived there when he returned from India, after his travels through the developing Canada and the US. It was here that he realized for the first time the reality and immensity of this new Anglo world that he decided to make it the subject of his future work. There were two further factors that were instrumental in supporting this expansion of trade and development. Firstly, throughout the Anglo world, there was a common commercial law system. Traders and investors knew exactly the legal terms of contracts and that in cases of dispute, there were courts, judges and lawyers who would interpret the laws honestly using commonly known and accepted procedures. Secondly, there was throughout the Anglo world the English language, which meant that communication between all the markets and between them and the UK was easy. Developments locally could be easily transmitted to the UK, opportunities for investment and trade could thus be quickly seized and exploited. Now, Alan Bridgman spoke about the Red Indians of America and their sad fate. The story of the Indians, the first people in Canada, is also deeply distressing. The organized butchery of the Indians by the Americans was not repeated in Canada. There was no need, starvation and neglect worked equally well. At the beginning of the 19th century, it has been estimated that there were 200,000 first people in British North America. They were mainly living the life of hunter-gatherers on the prairies, 
largely symbiotic with the great herds of buffalo, which has been estimated total over 30 million heads. The introduction of professional hunters with repeating rifles, the attraction of hard-wearing buffalo hides to drive the belts for industrial machinery, and the use of the bones as a source of fertilizer and glue led to mass slaughter. And by the mid-1870s, the buffalo were virtually extinct in North America, including Canada. The first people whose lives depended on the buffalo were condemned to starvation by the end of the century. It is estimated that their numbers had dropped to approximately 100,000. In a series of treaties, the Canadian government largely signed in the mid-1870s the Canadian tribes of First People extinguished their interest in the lands of the southern prairies in the areas that are now Manitoba, Saskatchewan and Alberta. What actually happened was, in return, the First People received lands in reservations, the promises of food, agricultural equipment, to help them become farmers rather than hunters, medical resources, and the promise of teachers on their reservations to help prepare their young people for the new world that the Anglo settlers would bring. Many of these promises were broken or only partially fulfilled. The Canadian government gained unimpeded access to the land needed to build the transcontinental railway and to provide for the influx that they foresaw would accompany this. By 1915, the prairies had received one and a half million settlers. What happened to the first people was in many cases a tragedy. Unfamiliar with modern farming methods and given only a most basic equipment, the idea of converting them from the hunter-gatherer life was an illusion. Food supplies were minimal, and in cases of recession in the Canadian economy, they failed totally, leaving the people in the reservations to starve. Disease and whiskey ravaged their numbers. Worst of all, the government handed the provision of education to external providers, largely religious orders, and these established boarding schools away from the reservations. Children as young as five or six were taken away from their families to be educated in English with their own culture and language to be extinguished. It was the Mounties, occasionally, who collected these children. There were eventually about 150 of such schools, 20 in Saskatchewan. What is now being discovered right across Canada are the, the unmarked graves of the many children who died whilst in the care of these institutions. The graveyard of one such in Regina, where the previously unmarked graves of 38 children had been found, each grave now marked by an Indian fellow. The shame of the treatment of the first people by the Anglo government in Canada was paralleled by that of the governments in much of the Anglo world. We heard again from Adam Bridgman of the slaughter of the American Indians by the American army. But this was equaled by the treatment of the Aborigines in Australia and Tasmania, the Maori in New Zealand, and by the native Africans in Africa. All these became Anglo settler goals, with dispossession of the native populations from the land, and Kipling had no prose or poetry for these tragedies. So this poses a problem for the Anglo world today. In some of the countries, the US, Canada, Australia, Africa, and New Zealand, there are strong moves towards reconciliation if not always, reparation. In Anglo-settled Africa, native Africans have assumed total responsibility for their own affairs. Often, as in the case of Kenya and Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, this has been after an armed struggle. But the foreign settler incursions remain a very sore point. 
In all these countries, the relationship between the first people, the Aborigines, call them what you will, and the Anglo world remains unfinished and unsettled business and work in progress. Vital to the process of reconciliation is the importance of education for the first people, an education that supports them as they adapt and thrive in the modern world, but which will recognize the value of their own culture in the process. An example of how this can be achieved can be seen in the First Nations University of Canada, a constituent part of the University of Regina. This is staffed and administered by members of the First People and provides rigorous tertiary level education for First Nations people. But it, in turn, this leaves the question, where today do we in the UK fit into this process of reconciliation? Indeed, what responsibilities do we now have, if any? There are no great houses that we can point to in the care of the National Trust and say that these were paid for by the proceeds of 19th century Anglo people's colonial diaspora, as there were for the early forms of colonialism and slavery. It's more possible that we could point to every house in the UK, because it's highly likely that we will all have relatives who took part in the great 19th century colonial investment. One thing we can do to ensure that, as the first people are doing in Canada, is that our young people are educated and given the total story, warts and all, bad as well as good, good as well as bad. The 19th century colonial Anglo diaspora was a human venture with all the benefits and disasters that that entailed. Part of that education could be for the National Trust's guide to Kipling's House Batemans to explore the Anglo diaspora, to tell the story of the sort of colonialism that he believed in and wrote so movingly about, but also to write the parts that he did not write about to be included. Now, sadly, many of the benefits of globalization arising from the Anglo diaspora were lost in two world wars. The links which bound the Anglo world together were weakened or even destroyed. As a result, the UK turned towards Europe and away from the Anglo world. Now, if Brexit is to have any positive results, if we are to learn anything from history, then we should join our fellow Anglo countries as they carry out the process of reconciliation and ensure that in this country at least, the historic conditions for racial and social division are not allowed to take root. Thank you. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.